Good morning, everyone. So we're going to be uh, finishing Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 6. For those who haven't been able to be here, we've been looking at Luke 6 in three parts. So we started in verse 20 through 26 with Jesus challenging our values. And then 27 through 38, how Jesus challenges how we treat others. And then this last sermon with the title kind of coming through, uh, the last section, verse 46 through 49, Jesus challenges me to dig deep. So we've been looking at this because uh, this year um, in my teaching, I'm trying to put an emphasis on strengthening our foundation. And I want to ask the question again, what in your mind are Bible fundamentals or fundamentals of faith? You know, your mind might go to uh, understanding baptism correctly, maybe matters of church structure, the church not being a denomination, uh, what we do as an assembly for worship uh, that sets us apart from most churches you'll find in culture. But according to what Jesus says, this is the foundation of discipleship. And I think too often I've either been tempted to or just outright taught someone uh, things that were more building the house <laughs> and not really building the foundation. Everything that Jesus teaches and the apostles taught is built on this foundation. And so if you don't think of this sermon or the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, I'd really suggest to you that's really where we need to begin as disciples. I just want to put your mind in your mind again that in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is giving the last charge of at least Matthew to his disciples after he's risen from the dead, He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is teaching here the foundation of what it really means to be a disciple, right? I think a problem in the world, and I think a problem that we easily have, is we know the concept of repentance. We know the concept of faith. But I think our biggest problem is a lack of commitment to the actual specific teaching of Jesus, and a lack of commitment to really knowing Jesus for ourselves thoroughly and specifically, and a lack of commitment to actually doing the things Jesus said were actually the foundation for discipleship. So I want to challenge you to really think carefully about these things and to not let it stop at the sermon. So as we get back into this, I am going to read the whole sermon again from verse 20. It takes just a little under five minutes, but I'll have a couple of more introductory thoughts about the past lessons here after reading it. So if you'll follow along with me, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who disparage you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your garment, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And treat others the same way you want them to treat you. 
And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, expecting nothing in return. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down and shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. Can a blind man guide a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. There is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a bramble bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good, And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. Now, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me, hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug and went deep, and laid a foundation on the rock. When a flood occurred, the river burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who heard and did not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So just really quick as as a review, verses 20 through 26, when we talked about how Jesus challenges our values, we talked about how Jesus commonly, the apostles who wrote letters to the churches, commonly warned about the danger of greed, and that Jesus isn't speaking in metaphors here. Right, So the Sermon on the Mount, which seems like a different setting, different time, that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So there he's speaking more clearly in terms of metaphor, whereas here, I think he's just speaking literally of situations and circumstances. And what we talked about is these applications in this sermon are built on the values that he blesses in verses 20 through 23. And that the first thing we need to do as as disciples of Jesus is we've got to change our values. And they are not values that the world supports or celebrates. And even in the world, if someone is poor, oftentimes they want to get out of being poor. If they're hungry, that's not a blessed thing to be. So they want to get out of being hungry. But the kingdom doesn't work that way. Because kingdom citizens are focused on future reward, right? Not on present circumstances. So the applications of this sermon, again, they are not only built on the values that Jesus blesses, but they bring us back into those values when we apply them. So verse 27 through 38, you know, if you love your enemies, if you turn your cheek, offer the other to someone who just slapped you in the face, if you give to everyone who asks of you, are you going to be laughing or crying? (laughs) Is that going to make you richer or more poor? So those applications, not only are they built on seeing the value of what Jesus said when he said, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who cry, blessed are those who hunger, 
but they were, they're going to enhance your connection to those values. And so if we try to make these applications without sharing in those values, either at best our application will be extremely shallow, or at worst we're going to walk out of here and it's going to leave our mind because we don't have the foundation we need for those things to sink in, right? I think it's easy to miss how radical just verse 20 through 26 is. And Jesus, when he's speaking in verses uh, 26 through 39, is speaking of counsel and application that I think it's important to note isn't going to get much social media traction. These are not the kind of things you're going to see celebrated on Facebook or Instagram. You know, the world has all sorts of advice that just can't wait to give you on how to deal with toxic people. And there may be some value and a need for balance with those things. But I think we just have to recognize that we really have to filter the wisdom of the world through what Jesus says here. And when you look at verse 35 and 36, not only do we need to filter these things through what Jesus says, but we need to filter these things through the character of God and the character of Jesus. What we really need to see is that these things are reflections of Jesus' own character. And that in verse 40, the goal of a disciple is to become like the teacher. So if we're struggling with seeing the blessing in these things, we need to think more about how we've received what we have from Jesus. How Jesus responded to people mistreating him in his ministry. And how little hope would I have in my salvation if God treated me the way that I'm often so tempted to treat others. What little hope I would have in my salvation if God got as frustrated with me as I get with other people, right? All right. So here at the end, Jesus challenges us to dig deep. And we're going to start with just the first two verses here. And I'll reread each section as we go through. So verse 39 and 40. And he also spoke a parable to them. Can a a blind man guide a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. To be Jesus' disciple is to strive to personally know him and to become entirely like him. And he starts this with a question that can seem redundant. And I think it can be easy to miss the value of questions Jesus asks. You know, why why does he ask a question that seems like the answer is so obvious? When Jesus asks questions, I want to illustrate the value of that this way. When I worked at UPS in management, that package delivery company, uh, when I worked in management, it was a very fast-paced job. Usually you're like keeping track of Five different things all are constantly on the brink of reaching some kind of emergency situation. So it's, it's very stressful. It's very fast-paced. And you can very quickly make a decision that starts a domino effect that goes beyond an emergency situation. Now you've made a mistake that is about to cost the company thousands of dollars just because you made a quick decision, wrong decision. Now we've got a big problem. Well, when that would happen to me, when I made decisions like that, my boss would call me into his office, and usually his boss would be in the office as well. And they would always ask this question, what were you thinking? And usually my response was, I wasn't thinking. <laughs> if I was thinking, I wouldn't have made that decision. I would have made a different decision, which that response would frustrate them because they wanted to walk me through you know, how to make better decisions. But the reason Jesus asks questions is like that. You know, It's hard to change our behavior and our decisions if we don't change our thinking first. And Jesus asks questions because... We're not thinking about this. And even if we are thinking about it, we're probably thinking about it the wrong way. Jesus asks questions because we need to change our thinking. And he's trying to get into our minds. It's not just that we have to do something differently. It's that we need to think differently 
as well. So a blind man can't guide a blind man. They're both just going to fall into a pit. And the idea of we need to strive to personally know Jesus is I think it can be tempting to follow people who are following Jesus or following people who we assume are telling us everything we need to know about Jesus instead of just following him for ourselves. You know, you imagine if we're putting ourselves in the position of a blind person, how do you follow someone if you're blind? Either you follow the sound of their voice or you cling to them. Listen, how well do you think you know the gospel? And when was the last time you read a gospel for yourself? Not just said it on a Bible class about the gospel. Not just that you kind of know the drill of, yeah, I know Jesus lived, he died, he taught some things. But when's the last time you dug deep and really read the gospel for yourself? And we need to become entirely like him in verse 40. You know, the goal of being a disciple is not just to become a churchgoer, although that's an important part of following Jesus. And it's not just that we become morally upright enough to fit in without controversy in society and be just a good example to other people. Again, look at verse 40. The goal of a student is to become entirely like the teacher. Do you think about that? I'll suggest to you that the daily goal of a disciple the deliberate daily goal is to want to become more like Jesus every day. Is that your goal? Do you think about that and pray about that? That every day, God, help me be more like Jesus. Help me think more like him. Let me make decisions that reflect better Jesus and think about how we thought about things, thought about people, thought about responsibility. How would Jesus handle your job? How would Jesus handle your relationships? The goal of a disciple is to become entirely like him. We don't realize that. We don't realize something fundamental about our faith. All right, a couple other things that I think are practical about what Jesus says here is if we are blind, and I think by implication of what he's saying, everybody else is blind too, and that Jesus seeing things from an eternal perspective, from a sinless perspective, Jesus is able to see blessings and dangers that I can't see, that you can't see, and that I can't see. And I think this should shape the way that we see his teaching. Jesus teaches some hard stuff here, right? So if we're going to align fundamentally with his values, that might mean we've got to treat our resources differently and start changing our thinking and start changing how we handle our resources. That's going to be challenging. If I'm going to start turning the other cheek to people who slap me, that means in a lot of situations, I've got to start responding differently to being wronged. If I have to give whoever who asks of me, then I need to respond differently when people want things from me, whether that's my time, my emotions, my energy, my resources, it's going to be hard. And again, a test of where my perspective is, is that's either going to be a burden or a blessing. But I have to, I have to understand something. This is a matter of faith. Because if I understand Jesus sees blessings that I can't see, then if I see Jesus's instructions at a, as a burden, why is that? It's because I'm blind. <laughs> And what I need to do is reinforce my trust that everything Jesus says is a blessing. And my problem is I'm blind. And that's why I need Jesus to redirect me. And if I think what Jesus is teaching is difficult, I can trust that it's leading me in a way of joy. Jesus in John chapter 15 said his commands are to bring us his joy and that our joy could be made complete. Jesus doesn't teach anything that isn't a blessing. Again, the issue is I'm blind. Well, how do you respond when Jesus warns about things that you can't see? 
or warns about things that you wouldn't naturally very be very concerned about or care about. Jesus sees dangers that you can't see. Jesus understands life better than you do. Jesus sees life differently than you do. And I want you parents or parents who your kids have grown up or whatever, do your kids understand danger properly? Do they understand the danger of 50 mile an hour cars on the road outside? Do they understand the danger that strangers may not all have great intentions and that people kidnap kids? Can they appreciate those realities? No. And so you have to enforce those dangers for your kids because they don't get it. That should change how we see Jesus' teaching. That if I hear Jesus warn me of something, but I don't see the big deal, that's because I'm blind. If he warns me about something that isn't tangible, I need to respect that maybe that intangible danger is much bigger a deal than what I think just because I can't see it, right? Jesus sees blessings and dangers that I can't see, and that should change my approach to his teaching. And Jesus sees the real roots of my real problems. Again, this should change my approach to his teaching. You know, so often someone might have an interest in the gospel because maybe their life is difficult. But then they start studying the Bible or studying with me or whatever, and they realize Jesus doesn't really teach things that seem relevant for them. You know, this doesn't seem like this is really dealing with the problems I'm facing in my life. You know, the problem is you're blind and I'm blind. Jesus is dealing with the real roots of what are actually my real problems. I want to illustrate this in a way that might sound kind of silly. But I've known a lot of parents, you know, I obviously don't have kids. I've known a lot of parents where their kids are misbehaving and kind of having a fit. And the parent realizes this is because the kid's just tired. (laughs) They're just really worn out and they need a nap or they just need to go to bed. And sometimes I've seen kids, you know, throw in a fit and the parent tells the kid, you're just tired. And you know how the kid always responds? No, I'm not. (laughs) And they tell him I'm not tired. But sure enough, they go down for a nap and they're done. Got sound asleep. The kid didn't realize that they were tired and that was really the root of the problem. But again, the parent, knowing the kid, knows this is the problem. You really just need to go to sleep. Obviously, that's kind of a silly illustration. But the bigger idea is Jesus deals with what are our real problems. And when we think Jesus is teaching, like turning the other cheek, that doesn't seem like that's really addressing my problems. That kind of seemed like that's adding another problem into my life. You know, giving to everyone who asks of me, I'm already having a hard time with feeling really vulnerable in my life and I really don't need that extra burden on me. Maybe the problem is I'm blind. (laughs) And Jesus is actually addressing what are my real problems. So then it's not just a matter of whether or not I do the thing, but whether I trust the person. Do you see the point of how important that is and how much that changes our approach to these difficult things Jesus teaches and how we need to dig deeper? Because it's not just a matter of doing the thing, but of trusting the person. All right, 41 through 45, Jesus challenges me to dig deeper in self-examination. And I'll reread this section and then we'll get to what's on the board here. So this is in verse 41. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a bramble bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, 
And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. So fundamentally, I want to just point out here how I think there's a deliberate emphasis on how Jesus opens our eyes. So he just talked about, you know, a blind man can't lead a blind man and all that. But you notice the emphasis on seeing. So verse 41, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Verse 42, how can you say to their brother, you know, let me take the speck out of your eye. You don't see the log in your own eye. Take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly. How is Jesus, first and foremost, opening our eyes and giving us sight? This is how he does it. Jesus trains me to become a student of my own heart. This is one of the most fundamental aspects of discipleship. Jesus trains me, he equips me to diligently study my heart and to navigate it effectively. You notice again that the first two verses here that we looked at were in the form of questions again. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus ask these redundant questions? Because this is not the way we naturally think. And we come to Jesus, we're not thinking this way. We're either not thinking about it, or we're thinking in the wrong way. We've got to make some dramatic changes to the way we think. So you notice Jesus makes some assumptions here. And I think it's important to take this very personally. Verse 41, it says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Who's he talking to? You look around him like, you know, maybe he's talking to this person, you know, not me. No, I think we get the most out of Jesus's teaching when we put ourselves into the teaching. So we're the ones here with the problem. We're looking at the speck in someone else's eye, not noticing the log in someone else's eye. Verse 42, Jesus is assuming we struggle with this form of hypocrisy. So I think we really have to first consider the reality of this illustration and kind of work through what he's saying here. So you have a log in your own eye, in my own eye, and I'm seeing a small speck in someone else's eye. Who has the bigger problem there? And is a speck a medical emergency? But what about a log? Like I'm thinking like something large enough where like it's festering, you know, you're bleeding and it's just unignorably gruesome. And you imagine if you want to take that speck out of someone else's eye, well, this log is in your eye. Are you going to be able to be delicate with that? Are you going to make that better or are you going to make it worse? Are you really going to help that person or will you just end up causing further injury? And think about this as well. For that person who has the speck in their eye, for the sake of what Jesus is teaching here, can they see the log in this person's eye who's coming towards me and saying, hey, let me grab this speck in your eye. No, I would never trust someone with a log in their eye to, to maneuver things delicately enough to take a speck out of my eye. So he says, first, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly. Think about this as well. In the most immediate sense, if I'm having to acknowledge the log in my eye, does that seem immediately easier or harder? I would argue it might seem harder. Because if I've just learned to live with it, you know, I've got this log in my eye and I'm just going about my day just trying to make the best go of it. To get that removed means that's going to take time that I haven't been making for it. To get it removed is probably going to be painful for a little bit. The process of recovery might be really challenging. So there's all these extra things now I've got to deal with if I'm actually going to take this log out of my eye that I haven't been willing to deal with. I think there's principles we can learn as we kind of work through this illustration, how this equips us to handle relationships with people. 
how do we apply this practically? When we see problems with someone else, how should we approach that based on Jesus' teaching? If I see sin in someone else's life, or if I'm frustrated with some way that I feel like someone else really needs to change in their life, how should I respond to that? I need to look inwardly first. What we are way too often prone to do is we see problems in others while exempting ourselves. You know, I don't think he's teaching here that we've got to be perfect and our lives have to be flawless before we can help anyone else. But at the very least, we're looking inwardly. And I'm realizing if all this work is going into taking this log out, the recovery time, we realize we don't change easily, that sometimes we have to take extreme measures so that we can change ourselves and get ourselves in order. And what I have to realize is other people are not going to change easily either. And I think this gets back to mercy and being merciful as the Father is merciful. Too often we want people to change at a distance. Too often we want people to change and we won't lift a finger to spend time with them. And what that means is we're not seeing the plank in our eye. Because if I really am seeing the plank in my eye, am I going to be willing to roll up my sleeves and recognize this person may really just need extra help. And the change that they're going to need to make, they're going to need some help and patience making that change. Because the end of this parable is you still are helping take that speck out of the other person's eye. It's just your perspective is obviously much healthier. And this doesn't mean that at times we're not willing to convey the urgency and seriousness of a problem. Because what am I having to do to take the log out of my own eye? I'm not going to change that situation until I acknowledge how serious and urgent that is to deal with. Do you think that then equips me to convey the urgency and seriousness of someone's sin, but in a way that maybe is more productive than if I'm approaching things without acknowledging those things? Again, this equips us for service, not just for looking at people critically from a distance, but recognizing the need to be patient and to be very involved. You know, far too often, and don't be afraid to bring this up to me, but I face situations where someone is, Brian, you need to talk to this person about this. Brian, you need to do this with this person. That's okay sometimes. But sometimes in my mind, I'll think, why don't you do that? You see the problem. You know, why do I have to do that thing for you that you realize is a problem with that person? Again, I think we're so prone. We want people to change without getting involved. We want people to be fixed and we want it to be at a distance. Guys, we got to change our attitude. We've got to realize that people change through patience and involvement. All right. Verse 43 through 45 with the trees and the fruit. Think really the end of verse 45 is the point. Our words are the window into our heart. I just want to think really quickly again, how can this be effectively applied? And I don't think it's the idea that we need to carefully craft our words so nobody knows when we have any problems. Jesus in Matthew 12 rebuked the Pharisees that they were evil and spoke what is good. So he said, how can you being evil speak that which is good? So he's not trying to enforce the fact that we just, we better not let people know that we have problems. But I do want you to think about this. How do you speak when you're dealing with tension? How do you talk to your spouse when you are really frustrated with your spouse? How quickly when life gets hard do you resort to complaining? How often do you think to thank God, to express your gratitude? How do you respond when you're feeling angry and dealing with anger? 
you know, this might be a silly illustration again, but if you squeeze an orange hard enough, what comes out of that orange? Orange juice. If you squeeze us through pressure, if you are squeezed through tension and pressure, what comes out of you is what was already inside of you. And based on what Jesus says here, the mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. When you recognize you've said something sinful or unchristlike, is it, well, this is their fault. They pushed you. You know, they shouldn't have pushed you in that way. They shouldn't have done that. Or is it your circumstances' fault? Should you blame the circumstance? Your mouth only speaks what has already been building in your heart all along. Because your words are a window into your heart. And by the way, this equips us in a really helpful way. Because if I recognize I've said something wrong, which I think is important to recognize and be humbled by, the solution isn't just, well, I'm sorry for saying that thing, or I'm sorry this happened to cause me to say the thing. Maybe it means I need to think at the bigger picture. What am I filling my heart with? (laughs) Am I filling my life and my heart with worldly things, worldly advice, worldly interactions? Or am I meditating on the word of God? Am I meditating on good things that produce good things out of my mouth? How easy is it for you to have spiritually substantial conversations with others? Do you ever start spiritually substantial conversations, spiritually challenging conversations? Surprisingly, and I think this is just the devil, that can be really difficult sometimes. It can feel just strangely awkward. Our mouth speaks what fills our heart. If we fill our hearts with good things, it will come out of our mouths. The solution is not just the circumstance or the moment. We need to fill our hearts with better things and we'll say better things. All right. And finally, in obeying him, and this is the last section we'll read here, verse 46. Now, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug and went deep and laid a foundation on the rock. When a flood occurred, the river burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. For the one who heard and did not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So do you want to say this strongly, that we have to be super careful to not be deceived here? Because Jesus asks the question, why does he do that? Because we're so prone to not think about this. We're prone to deception in this regard. So don't be deceived. If I, if you, are not digging deep to apply these things in this sermon... What Jesus is saying is pretty frank. He's not really your Lord. You know, you go to church every Sunday, you take the Lord's Supper. Maybe you get emotional taking the Lord's Supper. But you go through the week and you don't hate your enemies. (laughs) You hate those who hate you. You give to people exactly what you think they deserve. You know, you don't turn the other cheek, whatever. Jesus is not your Lord. (laughs) The way you show Jesus is your Lord is not through some great religious action It's not through just confessing something that can sound really good. It's not by making great Bible class comments. It's by digging deep and doing what he says. You want Jesus to be your Lord? Do what he says. We've got to be really careful again that we are not deceived about this. I think we're too often content. I'm too often content with a shallow approach to following Jesus. He warns of this in Luke chapter 13. If you'll turn in your Bibles here, This is a section of Luke that has really stuck out to me. It's only in Luke. It shares similarities to other things Jesus says in other Gospels, but this is only in Luke. And what he warns against here, again, has really impacted me, and, and I just beg you to consider this. Luke 13, 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. 
And someone said to him, Lord, there are just a few who are being saved. Seems like a pretty good question. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. And by the way, that means there's only room for one at a time. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and notice the term he uses here, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Notice it's a group now. But then he turns and says, if I can find my place, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we, the group, ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of unrighteousness. You see the point here? This person asks what seems like a good question. Are there a few people being saved? Jesus makes it personal. He says, you need to strive to get to that narrow door. You know, don't worry about whether there are a few people being saved generally. You work hard to be saved yourself. And you notice the deception here. I think this is really powerful. You know, how do the people think they were close to Jesus? In verse 26, where were they? We were right there eating with you. We saw you. You know, we were in the streets when you were teaching. We heard everything you said. He says, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> you know, they were content with a shallow approach to following Jesus, just being a part of the crowd. And you imagine how satisfying that is. You're, you're surrounded by people following Jesus. You're hearing his teaching. And I think we can be way too quick to be satisfied with too little. We've got to dig deep, each one of us. We're not applying these things. Jesus can see the difference. You know, we could attend a big church of 400 people with lots of exciting things happening and lots of people with great zeal. And maybe we have zeal. That's in big part because of that environment. Jesus can see the difference. And he'll call that difference into account one day. We are way too often, seriously, we are way too often content with too shallow an approach to following Jesus. We have got to dig deeper into what Jesus says here. So think about the illustration here. The only difference between these two houses, both people are spending a lot of money, spending a lot of time, building a full house. The only difference is one person in verse 47, I'm sorry, verse 48, is digging deep into the rock for a foundation. This is exhausting and time-consuming. And I want you to imagine, just for the sake of thinking through this, what if the lots were side by side, and you've got one lot here where someone is spending time digging deep into the rock, and the other person is building their house? Who's going to live in their house more quickly? Who's going to seem like they're receiving the reward more quickly? The flood isn't coming immediately. I mean, it seems like some time is passing. They have full opportunity to build their houses until the flood comes. You know, so this isn't as rewarding. It's not a quick fix. It's not as easy. You know, and again, digging into the rock, this would be incredibly time-consuming. It would be incredibly exhausting. And when the house is built, you're not visibly going to see that deep foundation in the rock anymore. It's just this hidden thing. So really, in the end, they might look fairly similar in the end. So why do it? Can the flood be avoided here? It's inevitable. And when it says in the end, at the end of verse 49, the collapse of that house was great, what that's implying is everything was lost. Nothing could be salvaged. No resource, no part of that house, no belonging inside. Everything was lost. Do you think that person would be satisfied with what they had done? 
Or do you think at that point they would regret the fact that they weren't more careful with their foundation at that point? So I want to illustrate this in a couple ways. So number one, I used to ride sport bikes, and there was a common proverb in the sport bike community that isn't adhered to all the time. The idea was dress for the slide, not for the ride. <laughs> it's very memorable. <laughs> and that was good for me because, Brandon, I don't know if you remember how many accidents I've been in on a motorcycle. Four. Uh, three of those four were fairly serious. One of those, uh, I totaled my motorcycle. And I was wearing armor, actually, from head to toe. And I had knee armor. And from my accident, the leather and the armor on the knee was blown out. The leather was torn to shreds. The armor was gone. I was happy about it because that meant if I wasn't wearing that armor, my knee would have been completely shattered. I might have lost my leg. I don't know. It was a pretty serious accident. So I was glad that I, I wore what I wore. And if I hadn't, I know I would have deeply regretted not wearing that. So then you have maybe more literally in Florida on the coasts. You know, what are the building codes for a place like a coastal town in Florida? What do you think are foundation codes? And what I often hear after a hurricane has blown away parts of the coast of Florida is sometimes builders will get in trouble because what they found out is some of those houses were not built to code and they are sued because they did not properly build those houses to withstand the inevitable. So how does this apply to Jesus' teaching? You know, the idea is the flood is inevitable. You know why people fall away from their faith? Because they're not digging deep and applying these things. I know this might sound weird. This might sound crazy. I will argue to you, a person will not fall away as long as they're digging deep and applying these things. Jesus says, this is a secure foundation. You dig deep, you apply these things. What he says is this is going to withstand the flood that shatters those other houses. You want to have a thriving faith? You want to take your faith seriously? Then dig deep in blessed are the poor. You want to have a thriving faith? Then really think about it when Jesus says, woe to you who are rich and well-fed now. You want to have a deep, thriving faith? Then you need to think really seriously about Jesus saying, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. You want to have a deep and thriving faith? Then learn how to bless those who curse you and pray for those who disparage you and spitefully use you. Learn how to turn the other cheek to people who hurt you. Learn how to give to everyone who asks of you. And it goes on and on. You want to have a properly founded faith. Don't blow over this teaching. Don't just hear a sermon and feel good about hearing a sermon about this teaching. I know some of these things sound harsh, but guys, Jesus is teaching with seriousness and gravity with this sermon. And we have got to take this seriously. And he gives warnings here because we are prone to not think about it. We are too prone to not let this sink, on, sink in and reflect on it appropriately. So I beg you, I beg myself, the plank is in my eye here. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. If this is not what your life looks like, Jesus' disciples are not afraid of conviction. And based on the teaching here with the plank being in your eye and embracing that, Jesus' disciples see greater grace in convictions that lead to greater repentance. Jesus' disciples do not withdraw and they have no fear of guilt. <laughs> they see guilt and conviction as the bridge to greater grace. Let that be you. And if that needs to be you this morning, once we sing the imitation song, I would beg you to come forward and let us help you in that. If we're going to do what Jesus says here, then any of us can confess something surprising, a sin that takes us off guard, or maybe a sin that you might be afraid, what are people going to think of me? 
if they hear that I'm dealing with this thing, if we're applying these things, we will help you and strive to think the best of you. We will roll up our sleeves. We're going to get to work serving you to help you with that sin. Let's pray about these things, and then we'll have the invitation song. If you'll pray with me.